0: Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Patrick Cabot, a media and entertainment lawyer and a director of the First Amendment Media and Entertainment Law Practicum at Cleveland Marshall College of Law. We will discuss his article, The Fossilized Right of Publicity, Fiction, the First Amendment, and the Freedom of Imagination. So welcome to the show, Patrick. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. Yeah, so uh paper is really a fascinating look at the kind of history, theory and justification of the right of publicity and I know that it relates to a lot of the work you do in practice. So I'm hoping later in the podcast we can we can talk a little bit about your work in in this area. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, Patrick, I was wondering if for listeners who might not be that familiar with the right of publicity, you you could start by just kind of giving them some background into kind of what it does, where it comes from, and and what it protects.
1: Sure, yeah. Uh, and Broadly speaking, it's 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 to clarify, it's not really a right. Uh, it's a it's a tort created by states around the turn of the twentieth century. Um, some by common law, um, some by statute that uh, prohibits the unauthorized use, in in largely, they share this format, uh, of of a persona, that is like of an image or some form of likeness, uh, usually in commerce. Um, And so whether it's by, some states will say use in trade, or other states will say for purposes of trade or whatever. But uh, the bottom line is is that if you use uh, someone's likeness without their consent, in a, in a way to advertise a collateral product, um, you could be sued uh, through this state law speech tort. Um, and, and, and usually the relief is for is, is, you, know, you can get injunctions, you can get damages. Uh, usually it's, it's, in that way, it's, it's much like the other speech torts, but it, it, it focuses on the human likes. It creates a basically a bounty. Uh, if, if you see an image of yourself out there and you think you can prove up that it was commercially used.
0: Cool. So, sort of when and how was the right of publicity created and sort of how, if at all, has it, has it changed over time?
1: Sure. Uh, a while ago, and vastly, I guess, uh, respect to the answer to your questions, uh, it was around the turn of the century that many of the courts uh, that, that talk about the right of publicity and sort of introducing opinions, pin it to the, the right to privacy, uh, the Warren Brandis article. Um, in, 18, in the 1890s. Um, and and the, the narrative is this: it's that you know, these law professors were worried about the yellow press and the writing in Massachusetts, so they say, goodness me, we must have some way to, to protect our sort of Victorian norms about, about privacy and the dignity of the home. Um, and so, uh, a number of states, having read this article, their legislatures passed or their courts adopted uh, this variant of what was then seen as a privacy tort, that is, propertizing the likeness to allow you to control it. Um, in, in reality, it's more complicated. Jennifer Rothman has a fantastic book on this subject. There were echoes of it previously um, in some of the courts uh, uh, where, where, where the, the term was thrown around and the idea was floated, but basically around the turn of the century. Um, it was, and, and, and importantly at that time, you know, in terms of how it's changed, we didn't have a First Amendment the way we have it today, so it was very broadly defined. Um, you know it, it, it was focused again on these sort of these, these privacy norms. Uh, it, it wasn't the creature of today where there's all these issues about you know celebrity status and, and, and monetizing fame and things like that. Then it was very much still a dignitary tort, and so, um, you know, the, the, the and by the same token, we didn't have the constraints that, that came up later in the 20th century on the dignitary tort. So the First Amendment didn't even apply to the states, so it was absent from the picture, um, and it was. In many ways, targeting these sort of the, the increasingly pictorial press. So, um, as originally conceived, there weren't any exceptions. I mean, it was just using someone's likeness. These, these early cases were about advertisements in print, you know, uh, sullying someone's image with a sort of tawdry commercial connotations, um, and 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 there weren't the checks and, and, and restraints that would later be grafted on as the First Amendment got stronger and stronger in the twentieth century. So. Now, um, it's a complete mess, because uh, having been developed in different ways in different states, uh, defined in different ways, and also originally conceived to target use of an entire set of images, that is, everyone's face out there, however memorialized, ever captured, is now presumptively proscribed and subject to a civil action. Um, the, the Sort of the aggregation of, of correctives that the courts put on say, well, wait a second, for example, the big important development was that surely the newspapers must be able to use the names of their subjects and articles um, and things like that that accommodated like the basic necessities of of trafficking and information. Um, Those had to come in in fits and spurts over the years. And so because they were done in different ways and under different cases and different states and, you know, today there are... You know, in some states, it's 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 limited by statute to a commercial aspect. In other states, it's judicial construction is narrowed it to roughly within the bounds of what we might describe as as commercial speech, which itself is something that was a moving target in terms of the First Amendment constraints, but largely this is all as a matter of state law. So you know, this became so unworkable that it, it, the federal courts got involved, uh, especially after the um, you know, the, the, the industries grew up around advertising and uh, fame and mass mass uh, communications technology made it easier to make lots of money on like this and things like that. So all of a sudden, there's many more decisions. Uh, Hollywood and, 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 and the and the other uh, creative content industries uh, had to wrestle with pulling it back from, let's say, you know, well, maybe, maybe a movie um, is less like a newspaper and therefore, Um, shouldn't be protected, then the Supreme Court steps in and says, no, not so, we must protect you too. And then the the state law gradually gets readjusted retroactively to fit that. So by and large today, it's lagged behind, but is more or less caught up with the basic outlines where it's well adjudicated of the First Amendment, but not in any coherent way because instead of starting with the First Amendment on a nationally coherent basis, it's through these sort of messy trails of of state-made, judge-made doctrine that use terms incoherently and consistently. Uh, and, you know, so you don't have, it, it is fundamentally a content-based restriction on speech, but you don't have a clear decision saying, okay, now that it is so, what are the types of speech you can regulate? When is it sufficiently narrowly tailored? You know, what, you, don't, you don't have that rubric. It back the courts operated against the shadow of that type of scrutiny and adjusted it as they went along leaving us with a very messy body of precedent that's somewhat easily exploited by enterprising plaintiffs.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, so a lot of your paper or the kind of the, the primary thesis of your paper centers around the kind of interaction and tension between the right of publicity, privacy, tort, and the First Amendment. So I wonder, I know, and I know this is a really big question. Like in a nutshell, could you describe for listeners who aren't sort of First Amendment historians, sort of what the First Amendment looked like and did, if anything, at the time the right of publicity emerged and sort of how it's developed since then? In other words, how is how courts ask First Amendment questions today different from how they asked those questions uh, in the early 20th century?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, If anyone wants a shot to the conscience, they should look up uh, the Supreme Court's decision in Mutual Film, which is one of the sort of the blighted decisions that Ohio, my home state, inflicted on uh, the media industry. Uh, but that is a perfect timepiece from the early 19-teens uh, about what the First Amendment represented then. In a nutshell, when the right publicity was invented, the First Amendment was a, a non-entity, in, in large part, in terms of how it constrained civil claims. It wasn't even, it wasn't incorporated against the states until 1925, so states just didn't care about it. And um, the Supreme Court didn't touch it, 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 largely, between, you know, the 1880s and the First and the First World War. So, you know, it, it wasn't a place of, of first resort. Indeed, in, in the Mutual Film case, um, what's interesting is that here, the thing the issue there was, was uh, and these, these are the, the State of Ohio's terms, there was a censorship board who, that was charged with censoring films, um, you know, that that were deemed, quote, immoral. Um, now, the Supreme, when it Court the Supreme Court, it had morphed into a First Amendment case, and the Supreme Court said, why is the First Amendment here? But that was the, the argument of last resort. Lawyers at the time, judges at the time, didn't see the First Amendment as operative in this area, so they tried everything else from equal protection to the various other places that, you know, uh, protecting companies uh, equivalently, you know, the sort of early intimations of a door commerce clause challenge by this sort of national film distributor against these regulatory censorship boards all this stuff was where lawyers went first to challenge censorship not the first amendment i mean that's in terms of that's when you think about why this right is so messy it was created at a time when no one cared about censorship um the notion that a film company I mean, film and commerce, this was it's a new industry. It's like it was seen as a novelty in a lot of ways. You'd have these public square meetings where, um, you know, some new technology and some new type of diet was being demonstrated for the gasping onlookers. And it seemed more like a toy than a, a core speech concern. Even setting aside that, you know, as a lot of first-time scholars write about, there was this uh, sort of uh, privileging, this, this fetishism of the sort of the politically valuable speech over any other sort of speech. Um, and so that, that's when it was created, this, an entire medium that we now know, um, is, is just as fully protected as this news gathering, even to the extent that that was on anyone's mind, it, a lot of the speech that we see today as core protected speech, as, as high value expressive speech, wasn't even considered speech. It was more sort of, uh, proximate commerce. Um, and you see that in a lot of the early publicity decisions as well, um, and, and so that's, that's where it was, where the state of the law was when it was conceived and adjudicated. It wasn't until the fifties that, um, the court started pulling back, uh, and the Supreme Court finally said in, in 1948, 52, look, you have to, like, it doesn't matter what the medium is, it, the speech that is, 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 you know, uh, the films, Hollywood, um, the informative and the entertaining stand on equal footing in the first amendment's eyes, um, so there, there's a sort of a moving story here. I'm glad you asked about that, because the biggest thing about the right of publicity is that it was created at a time before the First Amendment became what it is today. And it, it evolved somewhat independently. And so it was poorly constrained by the outlines of what, of what we now think of as basic First Amendment impulses, um, you know, that, that we prize speech over Congress, for example. And so you end up with, this, with a state-created tort that is motivated at most by a commercial interest, a state-created property right in one's image that to the contemporary eye, shouldn't stand on equal footing with the freedom to express ideas, let's say in fiction, or to tell truths, let's say in news. Um, but somehow, uh, was because of the fact that it lagged behind the First Amendment and, and the First Amendment was absent and didn't in fact do any of those things that was conceived, um, haltingly and stutteringly embodied those later grafted protections.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, so to what extent have courts sort of incorporated these gradually developing First Amendment speech protections into their assessment of the ability of state governments and state courts to regulate speech via the right of publicity? And to what extent, if any, has the Supreme Court offered any guidance on that? I mean, it seems like First Amendment questions ultimately seem to increasingly especially end up with the Supreme Court.
1: Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I mean, the, the conventional narrative is that the Supreme Court has spoken to this issue once and first it's out in the 70s in a case called McKinney v. Scripps. And this is this is a problematic case for a number of reasons, but you know, the, the, before I get to that, have they have they incorporated these intuitions? Yes, by and large, but inconsistently and not well, and off, often as a pure matter of state law of statutory construction, without reversing previous abrogated decisions. So there's this huge dissonance that grows up. Let's say there's some decisions from the 20s and 30s, in New York, for example, that assume that fictionalizing someone's persona is in fact some kind of a species of commercial speech, a a, 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 a property exploitation rather than an expressive, fully protected use that we would see today. Um, Notwithstanding the Supreme Court later stepped in and and said, you can't do that. Um, You can't uh, take that entire swath of expressive content and and, and, and eviscerate it by creating this claim. Um, Those early cases are still on the books and get sort of distorted and run through the um, jurisprudential echo chamber. So they still echo today. And we have cases like bins from 1915 echoing and cited in cases in the 2010s. Um, You know, so, so by and large, we have the rough outlines, the news gathering uses are protected, non-commercial uses around the edges are protected, but you always have fits and starts, particularly in and around new media. And that's sort of one of the big themes of this paper is that, and the reason I focus on fiction is that that's the, that's the worst term and one of the most important terms because fiction is a term that describes a, a doing of something expressively that triggers, if it's used imprecisely, uh, some courts have laughed onto that to say, oh, fiction is basically false and, and, and can be regulated that way. That's what New York did. Um, and so we're not concerned about expressive stuff when it's fiction. Um, fiction is is a complicated concept and courts have done better and worse with it, but it, 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 the way the courts have treated, you know, today, a lot of courts will say, "Look, that is a work of fiction." If so, facto, it's 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 non-actionable uh, under a right of publicity claim and protected by the First Amendment. Um, and some courts in New York say that today. Some courts in California say that today. And, and you have this dissonance that grows up. So even under something as basic as the idea that I can make a movie about someone without asking them first, um, it's still the case that. Because that question was answered very differently fifty years ago or so, you can find awkward cases and gin up arguments, let's say especially when there's a new media like interactive entertainment, um, that you might be able to persuade a court makes it more actionable because it's a less august use, since it doesn't have this sort of imprimitor of, of high culture value. And that's what happened in the video game context. So mm. you know when when I when I when I focused on the, the concept of fiction it's because that's that to my mind that's one of the places where we've done the most damage uh to creative expression is where uh we've decided to allow claims against things that would operate as works of fiction under any definition of the works that we like you know uh, award-winning films uh but for whatever reason um maybe skeptic higher art, lower art bias um we end up with individual discrete decisions that don't fulfill those promises. I mean, it's it's shocking to me, for example, that after Brown versus EMA, where the Supreme Court said video games, interactive entertainment, is entitled just as so much protection as the best Hollywood cinema, um, and focused on interactivity as the imagination-triggering value, you still have courts looking at these things and announcing rules that are different than applied to traditional narrative films. Um, so it's 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 that type of uh, concern that animated my focus on the development of the because it's developed incompletely, and there's always this lag. I mean, one of the, you could do a, a different article, it would be like the structure of scientific revolution, revolutions for um, for adjudication, because the same sort of thing happens in, in the common law, you know, you have a, a rule that goes along, some disruptive event, you have to change the rule. Um, here, the rule is every face is actionable. Some disruptive event, like you know, a a, a, a form of expression that has some value, and of course says, surely going to carve that and they do it. But the devastating thing, from the perspective of the public's interest in all of this, is that that twenty-year period, a bunch of voices are silenced, a bunch of authors are quashed, and even afterwards, uh, artists work gingerly around the margins of what should be completely protected expression. And so we're just deprived of all of this cutting room floor material, simply because courts have hesitantly and belatedly uh, caught up with the First Amendment guarantees.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm intrigued by this kind of expressive commercial distinction. And I wonder to what extent, if any, um, the Supreme Court or lower courts have sort of – thought about the right of publicity in relation to the Supreme Court's commercial speech, jurisprudence, and like Central Hudson, and so on? Or are they kind of deciding how to kind of categorize particular forms of speech in some other way that's different from that body of jurisprudence? Because, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, if anything, the commercial speech doctrine is sort of getting weaker and weaker, and more and more speech is getting protected.
1: Right, and 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 the most courts decide the use and trade limitation as a matter of the state law elements, um, and and there's a timing issue here too because what what's fascinating to me if you just map out the competing histories of the right of publicity and the First Amendment, um, you have this spike in the late '70s uh, when you have C- Central Hudson and Blasi, and these cases. Um, they're right around the time the Second Circuit finally maps that really important test, the Rogers test. So the Second Circuit comes in and says, um, you know, in the context of a, a, a film called Ginger Fred that uh, used the, alleged the names of, of uh, uh, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, um, that both the Lanham Act claims were an issue there and so too were the uh, uh, Red publicity claims, which setting aside some weird uh, jurisdictional issues were basically decided under New York law, um, or as how, or, or how New York's construe an effectively blank state's law, um, for right of publicity. And you have you have this decision in which the test that's grafted on supersedes as a First Amendment of matter the state law elements. But by and large, all the other cases talking about the use of trade requirement, let's say in New York, they're just construing the statute. They're not saying, okay, Central Hudson, you know, is this is this uh, for the sale of a product? Is this is this to affect the commercial transaction. Um, and so that that comes later. And and the, the funny thing is that the only, according to the conventional wisdom, the only time the Supreme Court encounters the right of publicity, um, is this is a case in earlier in the 70s. And this was before the Supreme Court was thinking really hard about, narr- about, about parsing the, what is commercial speech. So the right of publicity stayed off in its own little silo um, Massaging its own limits is as a sort of as a species of constitutional avoidance, while the commercial speech doctrine, you know, narrowed the ambit of commercial speech away from stuff that makes money um, to uh, stuff that proposes a commercial transaction. And you'd think exactly as you say that that as the ambit of of I mean, first of all, commercial it wasn't even certain that commercial speech was entitled to any protection at all. So that's an important side note when you think about what was the First Amendment like when the right publicity was conceived. Commercial speech, undefined, was, it was uncertain whether it was entitled to any First Amendment protection at all. And so you can understand why a lot of these cases, when you have, you know, profitable lithograph companies making money, they just think, okay, well, this is actionable. You've made some money and someone else's face was involved. Um, end of story. But the, the, the intersection between these things, it's frustrating as a briefing matter, because let's say you're defending one of these cases, and you're thinking, okay, I've got these, these various tests, I can pick the one I like, um, whichever one I think can apply here, but first I want to fight it under the stable elements. Wait a minute, I have this body of state law that tells me what a use and trade is, that is different than the way that the Supreme Court has defined and adjusted the boundaries of commercial speech versus non-commercial speech. Um, and, and it sort of requires some working through to remember that as a, as a species of constitutional avoidance, the right of publicity kept itself within its own bounds. But that doesn't mean that as the Supreme Court um, narrows the areas of, of speech that is regulable under the broader latitude of commercial speech regulations, um, that that body of state law can keep chugging along under its own definitions.
0: Mm, mm, mm. Well, so in your paper, you talk a lot about sort of how courts should and shouldn't think about the relationship between the right of publicity and First Amendment protections and sort of as you alluded to earlier, sort of how a lot of the problems are reflected in courts kind of wrestling with different um, genres or categories of of works of authorship and treating them differently. I wonder if you could give a couple examples of like what courts have done where they got it right and what courts have done when they got it wrong and and what you think the difference
1: is. Sure. Um, well, the my favorite right of publicity case and the one where I think the court most phenomenally got it right is uh, the she's Justice Chief Justice Burt's. Concurring opinion for the California Supreme Court, which commanded a, a sufficient number of justices' attention to be presidential. Guglielmi uh, versus Valentino, and in that case, the court thought really hard about what was happening in this case about a biopic about a, a, a romance actor, um, Rudy Valentino, and 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 wrote this singing opinion that you know explains why likeness is the building block of narrative and why in order to create realism and evoke the imagination and, and do all of the things that good storytelling has value because it does, you have to use someone's, uh, name or likeness if you want to include that person in the set and that doing so is, is inherently commercial. Um, and to the extent money is made, any individual's right to make money from that fame is, is defeated, uh, categorically, um, by definition. Uh, as by the speaker by the author's right to tell that story and the audience's right to receive it and it's just this incredibly thoughtful opinion that you know uh, decided um, you know amidst a resurgence in these claims uh, right in and around the years around when um, when uh, uh, the zucchini case is working its way through the the Ohio courts um, hit the nail on the head uh, this was a just it approximated the type of thing that I wish courts would do more is remember that this is a content based regulation speech. And at some point it comes down to a balancing test, even assuming that there's a validly asserted, uh, property right claimed by a plaintiff, you know, what that, you know, is it, is it the first step in your scrutiny analysis this is going to be, uh, what, what really is the government's interest here? And, and, and is the regulation serving a compelling one that's narrowly tailored not to intrude on speech and expressive interests? Um, and so a number of courts following Google Homemade, including Rogers, which cited sort of the leading the great cases, have more or less intimated that whenever you make fictional use of someone's likeness, that in and it itself, that type of use is so valuable that as long as you're not selling a collateral product, it beats whatever commercial interest the planet might have. And I, I love those cases because they seem to me to appreciate the importance of allowing this both, both the importance of the of the weight, of the, the the relative weight of the rights break down, or the interests break down, but also because by doing so on a largely categorical basis, they protect that other great sort of first of the spectrum, which is the chilling effect. And, and so, rather than doing what some courts, notably in California, have done, said, okay, let's let's really think about what the particular work is here and what the particular uses that you know, contribute something new and transform a a likeness, um, which. He invites a ton of litigation, expensive dispute, et cetera, Having a categorical rule that says when when this serves an important function, and we can define and understand that function as as, as victim, which is what I try to do in the paper, um, that itself puts this this entire area of uses just like news. It's 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 effectively the creative expression version of the largely agreed on news gathering and news reporting exceptions that when. A use is made expressly in a fiction, not actually blown to publicity. On the bad side, though, um, you know you, you have this sort of ping pong effect where a lot of these appellate decisions that I like are cleaning up messes from below because there may have been you know impulses that were equitable and had nothing to do with law, which is I think what was going on in two of the decisions I dislike the most: um, the Hart and Keller decisions uh, involving uh, claims by athletes against college athletes against the. Um, uh, the makers of, uh, of sports video games um, where it, it feels like the court's looking for a way of giving some lip service to uh, Brown versus CMA and saying, okay, these are expressive words, but still, the poor college athletes deserve some money here. Um, the biggest one to me, I mean, this summer there was a, a case that represents sort of a lot of the errors that I find courts are prone there was a New York Supreme Court, so a New York Trial Court opinion. Uh, Champion versus Take-Two Entertainment. And Take-Two, this is fresh on the heels of Take-Two's victory uh, over Lindsay Lohan and Karen Gravano, who was one of the mob wives, uh, who alleged that they were using the game Grand Theft Auto. And there's sort of two features of this of these two cases that I, I want to tease out, because the first problem is that the Supreme Court, uh, the Court of Appeals highest court in New York, it's the right result says these two celebrities can't sue this, um, uh, game for like, losing their, their likeness. But on appeal from a great pellet decision that says these are protected as works of fiction, decides it narrowly on the state law element of use alone. And says, look, we're really not sure if this blonde person is in fact the specific starlet Lindsay Lohan. Um, you know, and therefore under the pleading standards applicable to the, to the procedural posture case, uh, dismissed on that ground. So then, and that was at the end of last year. And so this summer, um, a New York trial court hits a case by a street basketball player, Uh, whose nickname was Hot Sizzles in various various forms. And uh, according to the allegations of the complaint, Take-Two makes a game including an option for a non-player character that is one of the guys on the side that sort of lends atmosphere um, to these uh, scenes and gameplay. Uh, as hot sizzles, and um, the court gets the, the right result there and dismisses the complaint after a bit of a detour about, you know, what types of evidence can be considered in these cases on a motion to dismiss, but has this bizarre side at the end of the opinion where the court says, well, this isn't, this isn't a work of fiction. We, we don't think that it meets the literary standards ascribable to the types of works involved, even in Grand Theft Auto which is both funny because a lot of folks would have said, in fact, Lindsay Lohan said in her briefs that, you know, the Grand Theft Auto is this lurid, commercialized nonsense that has none of the the value that genuinely, you know, snooty, look-down-your-nose artistic speech um, would have. Um, But this whole notion of literary value is is such a non-starter from the First Amendment's point of view in terms of courts playing value judgments. I mean, going back to the Ulysses case in the 20s, um, going back to the entire development of the law of obscenity. We don't allow those types of value judgments to punt speech out from, from protected speech into the categories of unprotected speech, or even to inform, uh, at a value judgment level that the nature and degree of protection, um, you know, if we can find features that intrude on valid interests, you know, they might play differently in a trademark claim or in a copyright claim, but we certainly don't say because a judge thinks this is good or has literary value, um, it therefore is, is subject to different rules. And so you see that impulse in a lot of the cases, the early video game cases, um, and you, you see that impulse in the obscenity cases themselves, um, in, in the New York courts that, that, in the various regulations around the film industry before films were protected, that gave us the protection of films. Um, it, 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 it's, it's an impulse that doesn't go away. Perennially, we just, the, the new seems less valuable. Um, and to see that in new mediums, to me, is the most troubling thing because when a court says to a new fictive medium that there is this space for gameplay in which people can do all of the things at once that the Supreme Court has serially said are protected, imagine themselves as others, participate in other worlds, wander freely in network environments, uh, inhabit other bodies, you know, create, express, perform, interact, do all of these things that are just core to the narrative and expressive interests in fully protected speech, the definition of the word fiction and the connotations of literary value that courts have ascribed to it would have left, but for the court's decision that this, this guy wasn't specifically depicted as himself would have left a claim against this game.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah. I mean, I got to say, it's like, I feel like this, phenomenon you're describing happens in so many different contexts, even though we say it's not supposed to. And there's a, like a sublimated version of that same value judgment often or almost always taking place in the fair use analysis and copyright law, which just seems to be much more explicit and on the surface in the right of publicity context.
1: Yeah, and I think there's it, it's interesting because when you have a publicity claim, it, it and Jennifer Roth work on this. is great because she she pieces apart the sort of the different intuitions that go into what what, what makes a publicity claim. You know what makes us feel about it. Um, it feels like someone's asserting themselves, and so there's a bit of we call it a right. I mean, it's not a right. You know, not not in the sense that there are constitutional rights, um, or even in the sense that there were rights that were sort of impliedly included within the types of things that the framers punted out of traditional scrutiny at the founding. Know, this is this is a state created boundary. Pure and simple, it's a it's a commercial property, right? No different than when the federal government says, "I'm going to turn a bunch of spectrum into something that the federal government owns and can sell at auction." It's just not. It doesn't. But but because it's a person, because there's this visceral association we have with faces, uh, it was a great uh, Professor Touchman has a great article on this. But but I think that what happens in a lot of these cases is, is you get it from both ends. You get a court saying, "Well, this new form of expression is is low value." It's, it's, a, it's, it's a game, it's not art. Um, notwithstanding that, like, from the salons on forward, the, 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 the most innovative art has always been looked at, ensconced by the people that, you know, purport to determine what's canon and what's not. But, but you have that impulse. But then you also have the, and by the way, this seems more personal. It's not like, you know, some aggregator of copyright or assign, assignments that, that is bringing these sort of commercially motivated claims about uh, manufacturable goods or whatever else. This this is a person and their identity. So it, it it sort of assumes in some contexts some unwarranted weight that doesn't make it obvious that the actual equities of the case start far before the person's likeness, but with the speech, you know, because we just speak meaningfully we have to speak about other people. But it's easy to forget that when someone steps up first and says, I didn't let you use my face. It takes an additional step to say, but wait a second when did my right to speak or to invoke you get conditioned on your approval?
0: Mm, mm. Well, so Patrick, I know you've practiced in this area for quite some time. And in closing, I wonder if you could reflect a little on how your practice in the area has informed informed your scholarship.
1: Yeah, I, I think that this was, a, in a lot of ways, this article is an exploration of many of the things I found frustrating about it. The practical exigencies of briefing these cases because there is this incredibly messy body of law that makes sense when you lay out the different strands that go into it. You know, we can we can identify what fiction is and why it's protected. So we can explain why the court sevenly protected categorically. We can explain why the body of law is such a mess. We can refute these claims about um, the, you know, the, the respective balancing tests and things like that, and the way that the case plays, and all these sort of, it's all cognizable when you lay out the full history, but you're never going to pull that off the brief, and, and you're rarely going to find a court that wants it in the brief or wants to make a decision on that ground, and so you end up litigating these cases for deserving clients that are making great art, or, and not, not you know, perhaps even more importantly, whose, whose challenged works will determine the boundaries for all future work. And you can't make the larger arguments because you want to win that case, and it's your professional responsibility to win that case. So you're not gonna ask a state court trial judge that doesn't see a lot of these cases to jump right into the First Amendment or these naughty issues if you think you can knock it out on use alone, or if there's a badly decided but helpful case that doesn't help the document as a whole from an academic perspective, but certainly advances a efficient resolution that they'll be applying in that case. Um, You see a lot of cases that get settled um, where it would be great to have clarity just because the risks and expense of litigation um, outweigh the stake that a particular client or a particular property has in the matter. And so you have, you do this for long enough, and you start getting a sense that the doctrine is being skewed because it is these non-principle, at least from a doctrinal perspective, issues that are determining what fact are being presented to courts, and even what arguments are being made against them. So we don't have some sort of platonic, like, play, judge universe in which all arguments are erred and fully ventilated and the best are invited opinion. You have this somewhat accidental, somewhat rational, self-interest-driven, uh, uh, heavily commercially weighted set of cases adjudicated that create the doctrine that we all need. And so, you know, the, the scholarship was driven by a need to tell the full picture not just the cases that make it the decision by happenstance or by the convenient alignment of commercial interests uh, and the convenient production of a, an action, arguably actionable work, but by all of the competing interests in play, because the one, I mean, setting aside the problems underrepresentation of indie artists and things like that, the one artist that isn't represented in any of these cases is the future artist who's working in a combination of medias, mediums known and unknown that will be determined by reference to cases in like, sculpture cases 2d cases 3d cases passive cases these are going to determine what happens in holograms and, and and when we can when we no longer have to go to a theater or even put on VR goggles and we can just overlay our favorite narrative film properties in the streets where they're set I mean the, these types of issues aren't even before the courts in hypothetical format and the rules that will govern them are being decided in my mind, troublingly uh, without immediate conformity to the higher principles to control them.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Patrick, thanks so much for coming on the program. It's been a really illuminating conversation about the history and and doctrinal problems with the right of publicity.
1: I mean, right now, <laughs>
0: Where are you? Dear, uh, I'm stuck in the barrel of a cannon. A cannon? Well, you know our old friend Zapata the Great, the fellow who gets shot out of the cannon? Well, I stopped by the theater, and Zapata got me to try on his new cannon for size and... But, Johnny, you said you'd be sure to pick up our holland bulbs. You know we've got to plant them right now. If we don't, we won't have any tulips or hyacinths next spring. But, Penny... Johnny, don't forget to pick up the Holland bulbs!